Hello, everyone. Apologies for the hiatus, but we're back in action, and we're back in your ear holes. This week, I had the privilege of speaking with Andreas Newman, Chief Creative Officer at Jushi. I met Dre back when Jushi had a few licenses, and I've had the honor of sitting on the sidelines and watching them grow into a monster retailer and a monster brand. Dre has played a massive role in Jushi's success during that time, curating the customer experience, the digital presence, the PR, and the overall brand. Dre's personal story informs all of this success. He has a unique perspective on his projects in the world at large. He is also fearless, which has led to some phenomenal opportunities and successes. He has worked as a photographer, an advertising executive, a record producer, and much, much more. Dre is inspiring, to say the least, and I'm lucky to know him. I hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did. Wow, that's really candid. I think you should get the popcorn out now and relax. I'm ready. <laughs> we're going back to we're going back uh, when I was 18, so now I'm 55, so you can make do the math. So when I was 18 or like 17 or something, I moved long out of my parents' house. Uh, and, and I grew up in like uh, in Munich, but in outside Munich in this, like my, my dad has this house there, like in the middle of the forest, which is kind of a, kind of a, a cool setting, but it's really, I grew up in the midst of the forest with a bunch of houses around it and literally in the forest, kind of a, a colony <laughs> as such. So, and there was a, and there was a lot of interesting interesting people living living in this colony and some of them had like i remember like one of our neighbors had this guest house uh normally like the the in the old days the, the servants were living there but then they they had their had their like whatever like their their nanny lived there and so on and then she moved out and then i i made the attempt i wanted to move out of my parents house and i rented this little place from them it was off it was, it was like a guest house or something a little bit far away from the other like not too close so this is where I started my kind of, it's like I had this motorbike gang, um, like half, half Sons of Anarchy style. <laughs> we were lounging around there and talk, we're talking about the bikes and then we we're driving somewhere and always up for no good, of course. And so we, we, we got to know this little bunch of older guys, like you know, they had already the cars, we had the big motorbikes, the big dirt bikes and stuff. And, and uh, so I met this, I had an older girlfriend then. And so I went into went into got introduced to that that bunch of guys who actually were smugglers of cannabis from Morocco wow so and how they did that was they they went with expensive cars uh, they, they bought Ferraris and Porsches and they had like very good looking women driving those Porsches and driving them down down from Germany to Spain and you know when you go all the way to Spain there's there's there's, there's Malaga and there's like basically you can see over from from uh, Gibraltar, actually, which is an ex-British colony, um, and a tax haven, you can see literally Morocco. And this is where the boats came in, and they seemed to, so they somehow managed to smuggle, like, and this was like, this was hash, right, in blocks. So they smuggled that over, and they did, uh, they did bring this all the way back to Germany. So these guys came to my little setup there and said, hey, do you guys, and they unpacked it, and I, I never seen anything like it. So they, they put this big block of hash on the table, and then he, he heated up his knife and then he cut down like a piece of chocolate, this, this huge piece. And then he lit it up with his lighter and, 
and and uh, roll their spliff, right? And this is this is what they do in Europe, right? They have they don't smoke like you were here in California, the pure cannabis, which I I know now. So, but then I had no idea. So I, this was this passion fuel spliff with real tobacco, and he was handing it around, and I smoked them, and. And I didn't really smoke cigarettes, it was more than alcohol, you know, 18, you drink my alcohol then. And like, I wasn't all totally illegal market. So, so I, I was never, this was my first time I got to it actually. And it, it must've been an Indica. And now that I know that <laughs> it made me so tired and, and everything. So I'd never, ever tried it again until 30 years later when I got involved into Jushi or, or like I got involved into the idea, let's say, starting this weed brand for the queens of the stone age that that rock band right i'm i'm a creative partner with so this was the first time when i got the real weed in my hand so so that that concludes the story i mean there's uh i could that that that, that did it for me i didn't this was probably a heavy indica my first experience and it wasn't a good one and i never touched it again and this is as well leads me to the future now right this is the challenges we will have with the product we have with the product so got to make sure this first experience is actually um, you have you you be educated before and you you learn about the sophistication of this of this plant and and not just meet somebody and try something right so that's right. that's probably the danger so much of that is uh, from a movie so you have women in ferraris <laughs> driving around you're talking about queens of the stone age this is a uh, it's it's pretty incredible your story were you um, a rebellious kid by nature i mean you mentioned motorcycle gangs you mentioned your yeah your, your so sheesh. so uh, so so brian i i moved out to, to ask about re rebellious right you i moved out um with 15 from my from my dad's house and i rented my own apartment first one was that what i just talked about the second i had another apartment with this old lady where i like well in, in i couldn't pay the rent so i had started to take out newspapers in the area mm -hmm. and had this little and then i built my little subset of of, of employees even under me with 15 who carried news, I took out big tours, newspapers to make the money and still went, went to school. So it was high school, right? Wow. And, but I ne ne never lived at home anymore. And then I'm being rebellious. I always was a rule breaker. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't understand when I was in, I, I was uh, brought up Roman Catholic and I never understood why I had to go to church and why Jesus has to be Jesus. However, I love Jesus, but I didn't understand how they were like taking it so like serious and militant, all that stuff. So I was always a rebel. Uh, whatever, whoever gave me a rule, I had to break it. And then this, this is until today. When there, when there's a rule, and if it's in the airport, some nonsense of like, you know, you know, when you have these barricades and they go like forever, and and you just could just walk yes. there. I'm not going to walk all the way like some people because there's there's nobody there. It's only made for kids. I've just walk through it, and then of course I'm tired. You cannot do that, and, but but it doesn't make any sense. So so this is just what I have in me. But I always. I always, when I started my first uh, business was 21. Uh, and so I went, went to film school for a second, like uh, so to college, right, in Munich. And then I said, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here for years and, and I'm gonna start, start doing stuff. And then I ended up, long story short, I, I, I worked with a production company by accident for a year. And then after a year, I started with 21, I, I started my own production company. Uh, total, total crazy. But everybody told me, how, why, how can you think you're going to be successful? You know, the Germans are super crazy. That's why I love America. America, when you say something, I want to start this, and everybody says, great. It's not meant maybe, for, but at least it's like perception. It's, it gives you good energy, at least, mm -hmm. right? In Germany or in England, it's like, well, that's not going to work. It's like, right. like, and this is when I hear that, then I have to prove it's going to work. 
So always was, I'm always a rule breaker uh, by, by trade, right? I, I, I cannot listen. I, this is, goes down in, into our businesses, but there's so many rules. Uh, you have to move around them. I always refer to Brazilian soccer players, right? So they, when you look at soccer, they're the only ones. They're the best team in the world, and they, they move around problems. They, they dance around it, right? They don't break the rule, but they dance so elegantly around their, 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 their problem, and they're not break into it like the Germans would do, right? They would just tank through it. Uh, this as well in German soccer, they like just, they, they run into people and stuff and the, the Brazilians just dance around and make the goals beautifully, right? So, so this is, I'm, I, I more see myself like that, but it's, it's for some people and my partners always and my girlfriends or wives, so there's always like a kind of a ride, right? So because it's, it's, it's not the usual, like uh, nine to five, okay, here, daddy's home again. And this, this is like, this is right. a, I'm in constant battle, right? At all, at all times, which right. I enjoy, enjoy tremendously. And you seem to be very good at it. And I think uh, certain things about being flexible, uh, but still very aggressive, uh, reward you in an entrepreneurial sphere, right? So you oh. mentioned you, you started your first company early on. How old were you? 21? 21, yeah. So it was a film production company and I had no, I had a business partner who was already in the business to, to be fair, you know, and he, he loved my my fearless energy, just like, let's just do this. I was working in some place for one year and then I thought I know everything. I said, I'm gonna confidently said, like, you know, like when you take the pill of confidence, so does I have this comp constantly in me. So <laughs> this drug, right? So I said, I'm gonna do my own production company. If you wanna join, yes. How are you gonna finance this? I'm gonna get, raise some money for it. So how do you raise some money? I've got to my bank. Where else do you think I'm gonna be go? So I, this is what I did. So, and then even the bank bought in, it was backed by my mom, the first company, but still I got it, right? Yeah. Uh, but she backed it and I never, I, she never had to back it. So I, I managed to make this a pretty successful business and sold it four years later to a big American agency called Gray Advertising after winning, winning uh, Cannes Film Festivals. And it was very lucky. It was a great timing. And, you know, in, in it's, I can, I can talk hours for only that part, but I, did something which normally shouldn't work. And would I do it again today? All the stuff I know now about it, I probably wouldn't even do it like that again. But I was so confident and it still worked. And But we were sitting around there for, for months and the phone wasn't ringing. You know, there was, this was the time when we had a reception. We had hired one person, the receptionist, and she picked up the phone, but all she did all day is her fingernails in the, in the first few months because <laughs> there was nobody calling, right? And you had to send letters to agencies and we had to work with agents. But then, I was very lucky with one of the commercials we did. I, I produced it my, myself. I was in it as well. It was an aftershave uh, commercial, I remember. And it exploded, that commercial. It tested so well in focus groups, so they, they bought it out. We, so it was supposed to be a test commercial in the beginning. We did it for no money, but it had a deal. If they use it, which they never do, it was, a, I remember, a Procter & Gamble commercial. They had to pay $400,000 or something for it, and that happened. And then that kicked off the whole whomp, that journey. And that, that film won a Cannes Film Festival as well. And then the, the, the jobs were flying in. And then I sold that company with 24 and had to move into gray advertising as their head of production of whole Europe with 24, youngest ever. Wow. And, and, and was, was ruling like a, an advertising production business of like 100 million a year. We shot 350 commercials a year, so every day. Wow. Really? A new one had a team of like 100 people there, like just producers and assistants and whatever, like art directors. Uh, the whole company, we had like 1,000, 2,000 in Germany in the office. And, and it was phenomenal times. You know, in the 90s in advertising was anyway, it was great budgets and all that. So 
So I started one more company, one more company, so always in and out. And I did this for once three times before I moved to America, the same thing, including in London. When, when the phone wasn't ringing and when you didn't have money and when you didn't have customers, that, that, uh, that sensitive period, were you afraid? No, uh, you know, this, this, this is my big problem probably like, <laughs> I'm, I'm never afraid because, you know, especially when you're 21, what could, what could ever happen to you? I mean, I don't even have children and stuff. I mean, it's like, what's the worst can happen to you fail and then, then you do something else. I mean, I don't have a kid in school and all that. So I didn't have that. And so my twenties, I had no kid, kid, children, nothing. So, so how can you be afraid of anything? And, but nobody understands that, of course. I mean, I say, how can you not be afraid? What, what do you gonna do? You go back to university. I can't give a shit. Like, are we going to do this now? You know, like, yeah. like I'm not afraid. And if, if you, I think in life uh, and giving something good, maybe throwing something good out there, I think doubt is one of the things which takes you out of your swing and your timing, right? So if you doubt one second, you, you come out of timing and then that window which might be open closes and it opens again later, but it closes and you need crash into the window because you, yeah. you doubted it. And then, so I wasn't, I never doubt. So my windows are most of the time, I float through it and people don't understand how did he get through it? But I tried it, but it was closed. And, but it's open with me. So it's only open because I believe in it and I, I don't doubt it. And then I haven't, I'm not afraid. Fearless, for sure, fearless. You know, this is one of the things you have to, you have to train yourself. And I started, I have to say, my, my dad, and this is one of the keys of my success, if it's considered as success, whatever, my success for myself. Um, I was starting meditating with very early age, with seven, seven years old. I, wow. My dad was a Bhagavan a Bhagwan uh, guy, you know, like he was a writer and, uh, and he, Bhagwan was big. I don't know if you remember Bhagwan, he never mm -hmm. he called himself Oshu. Um, so he did meditation every day and I saw him and they said, what are you doing? I just, how do you do that? And he said, you just try to breathe and think about nothing. That's all you have to do. And I, how long you do it? As long as you want, as long as you can. And then I started doing it. And this is like kind of put me always, and I do it since... Then, you know, like I try to meditate every day. Uh, sometimes I don't make it, but I can do this in the plane. I can do this sitting in a meeting, even meditating. I'm, I'm so good at it already. I sit in a meeting with 19 people. I put my hands like this. I receive the power of the universe and I breathe. And then I meditate while I'm sitting in a meeting, right? And then I get completely focused and clean. So this is like all like exercises you, you should do, I think. And, and if you do those little things, lots of things you can learn from the Asian Asians, right? It's like how they the Buddhist monks and all that stuff, how they achieve stuff effortless. That's there's, there's, there's what you have to think about that stuff. And I think it's important. Some, for some people, it's very hard to do that because mm -hmm. they didn't grow up in this, in this way. So meditation, it was also introduced to me at a really young age from mm -hmm. my dad. I think yeah. he, my dad introduced it to me uh, because he was not great at meditating. He was trying to get away from, from the, the constant noise, right? Yeah. And some of the doubts and fears. It sounds like your family was kind of the other way. This was just kind of an ingrained mindfulness experiment. What were they, what were they like in, in, were they conservative in their careers? Were they more like you? No, my, my dad is the opposite of me. So he's yeah. like, a, he, he's, he, he, he comes from a, so we like my, my dad, so then they come to me, but my dad comes from a very super rich background uh, in Germany. And this is like, when you go like, Let's go to Downton Abbey times. Imagine the equivalent mm -hmm. of Downton Abbey was my dad's parents. But the mom of my dad 
was like the character in Downton Abbey, the, I think Sophie was the, the one who dies. I don't know if you've seen the show, but the spoiler what, alert for everyone. Yeah, no, it, this is so so old show. Yeah, it's so great the show. You can watch it at any time because it's so beautifully shot and and and, and so well directed. Anyway, so she was um, aristocracy German arist aristocracy. She was pushed out the family because she married a commoner, oh, wow. and and that's a big mistake. Or like this is a big thing for when you're in this then in it nineteen twenty or something. So this one was my parent, my my dad's parents. So. They inherited a lot. They never really worked. My my grandparents uh, from my father's side, you know, they always. My, I remember my granddad always had a bow tie on in the morning at breakfast. And he has this huge house in Munich, and they have servants everywhere, and like Nick just eating and talking and stuff. So this is how he grew up. But then he got a, given a house when he was twenty six, a humongous house, the house in the forest. This is, was just a you know, kind of the, the the weekend home got given, and this is where I grow up. But my dad always worked. He worked. He, he was. He didn't want all that stuff. He worked at a, at a newspaper in Munich, and he was always a very conservative. Like he, he was very. He's, he is the opposite of me in terms of. Uh, he's not fearless, right? He has the fears, and he always had to deal with that. He's a writer. He's very insecure about his writing. He wasn't sure he writes good stuff, and you know, artists are always insecure. So he was an artist, so he made his own money. He, he had lots of stuff given to him, but but then then. With my mom together was kind of weird as a weird relationship. They're now divorced. But to answer your question, he is the opposite of me. He he had to deal with this. And meditation was one of the things he mm -hmm. he tried to take on to to overcome his fears and his now today you call it anxiety, right? So, mm -hmm. so I did never heard this when I was young because all my kids and my daughter says I'm anxiety. I have to anxiety. I say, what the fuck is anxiety? I've never heard about it. And it's like and that now, of course, since I'm in the cannabis industry, this is one of our biggest things we have to deal with the veterans and all and everybody really like from from even from COVID to PTSD of all kinds of stuff. And I understand it now. Uh, it was there then as well, but it wasn't a cool thing to admit as a man or something. Maybe even today, when you go certain places, people would not admit they have an anxiety, right? Like or some unmanly thing to say. I'm not afraid of it. But I can really tell you, I don't have anxiety. And if I would have it, I would actually tell you and i would enjoy to have it and i would try to deal with it he was he was he had that he had that and i was growing i tried never to be like him in a way you know in, in that department maybe and then and i completely got i'm the opposite his opposite mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think a lot of times uh our our lives and probably our careers are informed by picking certain things about our our fathers or our mothers or whatever yeah. figures and then try, trying not to do that he sure. did a lot of great stuff he was a great uh, photographer uh he didn't wasn't a photographer but he was a great filmmaker and stuff he did all his family films i was editing him for the super eight so I learned a lot from him uh he had a great eye and that's i think inherited from him but but the he He's so scared to jump into the next imagine he was employed with the newspaper for like twenty five years so in 25 years, I have like done like whatever, how many companies <laughs> in different worlds, different lives, different, different everything, different countries, different places I lived. And so I enjoyed the whole world. I always said when I was very young already, it doesn't matter if I die tomorrow. I've done so much stuff already. Like it was actually pretty cool. Talk me through the transition from, from all of those various companies to Jushi. And I, I met you sort of at the beginning of, of that adventure, I think, which was, yeah. which was really interesting. And it's been awesome to watch Jushi grow. But how how did you get involved in in cannabis in the first place? So I said I started my I, I'm, I originally come went into the advertising business right. Mm -hmm. So when I was my first company was an 
uh, advertising film production company. So it was a service business to the agencies. And then it was bought by the agencies and it was in the agencies. And I had to stay there because I sold my company. But then I, I ran like I was inside the agency, which was fantastic. I mean, you had all these clients to play with, like thousands of clients from SlimFast to T-Mobile to all fragrances and Chanel and whatever, like Procter & Gamble, the whole thing. So that was an amazing experience from my 20, 26 to 29. And then I left, I could leave, and I, I, I moved to London. Mm. And in London, for me, this great thing. I had achieved everything. I was kind of half very famous in Germany, you know, the youngest thing I had, like, was in the local newspapers and whatever, like, there's no only considered Germany as famous in Germany. It was great. Like, <laughs> don't even <laughs> want to be famous in Germany. So, but it was kind of a famous business guy, like one of the youngest, this, this and that. And I jumped right away. I was so bored with it uh, from, from not only from, um, from, from creativity, but as well, I wanted always to get to America. And I thought the, the easiest thing to, to go to transition, the closest thing to be now not to lose because of time differences, connection to my original business was to move to England, to London, and, and start totally fresh there. So I bought a house in Notting Hill um, before Notting Hill was hip. You know, mm -hmm. I bought this house. This was another one of those things I just thought, oh, this is a great area. And, and then afterwards, the movie came out, Notting Hill, if you remember, with uh, yep. Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. So when this came out, the house I built, uh, or the house I bought, was this old house from 1900s, like got like tripled in price, right? Like and stuff. So I have this great events happening while I'm moving, and I, I really took a year off over there, or I tried to take a year off to, to because this was my 20s. I never read a book or anything. I never, you know, never did what I wanted to do. So I really, then when I started deep photography and I was reading a lot of books, was watching a lot of movies, and I was hanging out in my place there. Uh, I kind of see my retired with 28 like in London, right? So I had nothing, I didn't have to do it do too much really because I hadn't made enough money to not do anything. So, so then what happened is I, I, I was got really in the end of the, the 90s of advertising was a, was a great time because digital just started to arrive and the efficiency of, and this is relevant to cannabis later, the efficiency of, um, of the traditional advertising ways was questionable by all this new digital stuff coming up. And I was really interested by that. And I set up a company in London then uh, called Centuria Group. And Centuria Group was kind of um, a, one of the first branded entertainment agencies. So we, we basically, uh, our mission was to create uh, and IP, entertainment IP inspired by big brand values of big brands and, and giving them the opportunity to invest in something beyond traditional advertising, which is today, you could call it product placement, but much more sophisticated. You know, you get, you don't even have to see the product, which happens today all the time. You know, like this is like one of the things you, you have to do in business where you're not advertising, specifically as well, the tobacco industry, by the way, was a big, uh, um, was a big star in that, in, in that genre early on, already in the 50s. They had the Frank Sinatra radio show and the Lucky Strike radio show by Frank Sinatra and all that. So it's all like branded content, right? Um, so, so I had this company, I, Funny enough, I, I moved that uh, with another move similar like my first company into a big agency called Saatchi and Saatchi in London, which was fantastic. I was then member of the board in Saatchi and Saatchi, the head of all content and branded entertainment and could play within the agency again with all those big clients. And that was fascinating. And, and, and this is where, where digital got stronger and stronger. And then I, the, the moment happened when MySpace showed up. I don't know if you remember, and then, then uh, mm -hmm. Facebook and YouTube showed up and, and Yahoo was just replaced by the early Google and stuff. 
So, so that made me, of course, one. I have to hear about this, this, this billionaires. So I have to have a tech company now. So in Saatchi, in Saatchi, I started to develop a, a, a company called talenthouse.com. Actually, fine enough, they just went public in Switzerland like a month ago, wow. uh, after, after how, many, how many years? So I started this in London, and it was basically a, a, a LinkedIn for creative people. And so we raised money. Uh, I left Saatchi with spectacular moves, and this was kind of fun after three years, and moved into... And, by the way, the parallel universe, well, I had a record company as well, and you would pull the dogs out and all this push, like we can get to it later, but on, I had as well a record company and others, other companies, but the more relevant to our talk is now the, the, um, the, 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 the advertising company. So I moved out of there and, and, we, and we moved to Silicon Valley. And this was my first time in America. I moved to Silicon Valley and I started building Talent House with a tech, with a whole tech team we hired there. We raised the money in Europe. So we very quickly spent all our money on <laughs> stuff. And this is now comes, comes to again to usually later. I learned how not to do it then, how to ignore the user experience. This was early user experience, guys. 2005, you mentioned, you had a UX guy sitting there, but nobody took their guy serious. It was not even like, not even the iPhone one is out. It's just about to come out probably like a bunch of years later. So, so who takes a UX guy serious, right? So I didn't, I had one, but got $7,000 a month then was from Russia and he was sitting there and I, like, what does this guy do? And say, oh, he just makes the user flow, flow, right, whatever. And I have a new idea every day and every day, you know, and we're building kind of Frankenstein with Talent House. And later it was got kind of fixed. I, 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 I couldn't deal with this, like, well, it was, it was just not right. I learned a lot of good stuff there, but then I left basically Talent House uh, two years later and I moved to Los Angeles and, and, I said, okay, I had enough of this. I sold my, sold my shares in the right moment before like 2008, a big crash happens mm -hmm. and, and moved into uh, more creativity again, looked for, uh, there was still the brand and it was still hot, but I was looking for other stuff and really did a lot of my creative stuff, hooked up with them. Um, then later with, uh, with a lot of musicians, with the, you remember Josh Homme from Queens of Stoneage, mm -hmm. uh, who I met and we started to creatively coll collaborating on all the visuals for the band. And then the Foo Fighters come, the Arctic Monkeys come, and my rock and roll photographer's career comes. But as well, a lot of, a lot of uh, new startups showing up. And then in the end, like four, five years ago, I got introduced to somebody in Silicon Valley again, which, um, which just started like a company called Idean. And Idean was, was a startup in user experience and i had no idea again what it was but it sounded interesting they wanted me to do a film for them and i and i did this directly with the ceo of a guy from finland who was already for years they did, did that, that that company in finland and then i was introduced through that film into the art of user experience and custom experience ux and cx and i got so fascinated by it because this took kind of for any project you could imagine that we had 350. And so I, I, I invested in the company, what, what became partner and, and, and uh, we sold that three years later to a company called Capgemini in France for over hundred million dollars a service business, wow. which was a fucking amazing deal. Um, the thing is what I learned there is that by, with all the clients we're working for from IBM to Apple to do, HP and all the Silicon Valley guys, Ericsson and 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 and, and Boeing and like new new ways, new 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 basically dashboards for airplanes, uh, autopilots dashboard for, even for Ferrari in the end for Ferrari and, and three hundred fifty projects a year. Imagine, so 
We, we, we built this company from one office in Palo Alto to six offices around the States. We had office in Berlin, London, Helsinki, and so on. So, and then sold it. But what I learned there was incredible in terms of the discipline of like the, like the, the, the process, the research, which we call discovery, then the interaction design, which is kind of the architectural plan of an application, and then actually the first design, and then you, and then you test, 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 and have the M MVP and all that. So I learned that, and it took all the headache out for any project I would do. And when I, and I, of course, the same time I do rock and roll photography and do movies, and it, American Valhalla, the movie with Iggy Pop, because I always like to be busy, right? So I do, I do that business stuff, but as well, I do the creativity. And this is with me, maybe like the, the difference to other creatives, because I always, I always made sure I have enough money, because if you an artist, you don't have any money, you, we only have to run after others and ask, can I, can I do this? I only do my own projects. So all my books I do, I want to finance myself. I, I'm totally independent as an artist, so I don't need anyone to pay me or anything. Uh, however, when people, they pay me when, when I, when I so arrogantly choose to, right? I mean, when, I, when somebody asks me to do a shoot, then okay, well, that's what it is. If you can afford it, then I do it. But um, then I do it on my own terms as well. And I have enough credibility now after the stuff I did, that I can do that. So, so it was beautiful. But as well, coming back to the business, the business is an important thing to focus on. So you, and, and, and it opens your horizon as well to other stuff. You know, if you're only a photographer and like whatever, like you just get like a little nerd, I guess, like and you, you don't see the big picture anymore. And the, you now what are you going to do with the NFTs and all this bullshit? So anyway, this company was a big school for me and I sold this in 2017. And then we had to stick around a little bit. But then I was the first time confronted by this, by when, when, I, when I went to this, my artist friend's studio, I saw this pack on a table this this kind of cigarette pack i would call it in black very sexy design what was called master leaf so master leaf was so i said what is this master leaf it's like then my friend leor he said uh he said well that's my brand andreas it's like wow what brand is that's my cannabis brand oh you can do this here so then i only figured out wow you can do this in california you can have brands and stuff so that's interesting why don't we do one with a uh, uh, queens of the stone age and this started my my quest of that i was kind of looking for the next big thing you know for years because i did my photography i did the ux company it was a great business was successful it was a nice exciting new thing but really the, this wasn't the the monster i was looking for right it was kind of cool and like learned so much and it, it was amazing but this is not the, the, the big thing i was flying up to to northern california to do uh, one of the parts of the record cover of Desert Sessions, which later in 2020 won, won me as well a Grammy for Best Photography and Best Album Package. Um, so I was flying up there to meet a guy called Les Claypool from Primus. He's like a, another famous indie musician. So and I did his, his part was because he was on that record, Desert Sessions. So, so I did his shoot there. And while I was driving in Northern California through Silicon Valley, I was thought about my old friend that was working with in Talent House. Like Trevor Healy was on my board, big investor in tech and so on. I was like, he knows always everybody. I said, let me call him. But he's in Singapore and we might not answer his phone. So, so I left him a voice message. Hey, man, I'm driving through our old neighborhood here. You know, happen to know anyone in, in, you know, in cannabis. And then the guy never calls back. You know, like he's, he's just calls back one day later. Only if he's interested. one of those, like, if it's interesting, he's there. If not, sure. he's not there. So, so one second later, I get a voice message from him. Dre, great to hear from you. Like, da, 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 great, to, great to hear your voice, blah, blah, blah. But you must meet my friends from Jushi. 
Jim Cacioppo and Eric Moff, they just started this company in retail, East Coast Focus. You have to talk to them. I'm sure you, there's a fit. You will love those guys. So then the next thing I know, I'm on the phone with Eric and then I met Jim. And the funny thing was my pitch now was not, the, I know they had, they had my bio with Saatchi and brands and all of this. They thought they might need that. So, but my pitch was really, guys, everything is done in, in life these days through the experience and through taking the frictions out, frictions out of your organization, right? And that's, we can apply this to your startup which is, was a startup then. I mean, they had literally like 15 people or something or 20 people then. Wow. So and, and on a PowerPoint presentation, maybe like just about to buy beyond the low, the first license or something, yeah. but not really. And then there's clever moves and buying license and selling them again. So they didn't, they hadn't found themselves yet in this moment, which is a great moment to come in. So we did this research for them on, on, on California retail with my, with my best team out of the the, the ID in company, right? I, I kept like the Benjamin Ellison, Julian Scarf, who you who you know, I think like they they like Julian is a professor at the at the University of uh, the Art Center in Pasadena for user experience and customer experience. So he's a he could conduct exactly that research method we used in ID to analyze businesses and help businesses to build applications. And so we did a a research project for them on on uh, on California retail. And that was so interesting, you know, what we learned, the flow of the stores and what, what's important, what's not important, how the people move around, how the cannabis user interacts with the bartenders. Well, there was uh, uh, days of observations and then came out in a big 100, 200 pages presentation, which still is used today, like four, three years later, still we use it to train people. Yeah. So, so that was the first project and, 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 and it was kind of like dating each other. And then I became bum. Like I said, this is so great. This, this is, this is it, you know, like, this is like prohibition coming on again. This is like, there couldn't be a better business for me where you again have to dance around the problems where you have to constantly face the, yeah, you am I breaking the rule? Am I not breaking? Don't right. break it so hard that it's actually dangerous, you know, all that <laughs> stuff. And, um, and this is this is when we then decided to move in with my team, moved into Jushi, and I became chief creative officer of Jushi, and took over uh, digital brands and store design really, and then as well like the whole PR of the company uh, and the IR together with my partner Michael Province. So we we started basically together. So my creative team, and I don't call it marketing team, now handles all that and basically has touch points in all over the company. And the the biggest claim to success, I'm coming now to to yourself is really that we saw that um, there's no there's no digital happening here. There's people walking in the stores and they just pay and then Joe goes home mm -hmm. and maybe he comes back, maybe not. I don't know where he lives. I don't have his number. I don't have any digital footprint of him. How can we make this happen? I said, we have to pre-ordering or like we have to have, we have to have e-commerce. And I naively said that really not even knowing, you know, this is a similar, like when I was started in, in with Trendy Wonder Business, I said, we got to have e-commerce. It's like, <laughs> then they all say, we cannot do it. You cannot do it. Of course you can do it. Then I had to drive, like, I don't give a shit, like come from a world where everything is possible. I didn't really know yet that it's so sophisticated in cannabis in the States. And so I just naively, like confidently again, walked through it and, and pulled it off that we actually installed Jane, right? Which... Uh, I can say proudly on the 27th of uh, April when we installed it did like with no advertising we just I think built a pretty frictionless good portal for, for your platform we did like 30,000 a day 
And I was so, I've never done this. I, I've done e-commerce platform for Jessica Simpson who could tweet to like 10 million people. Sure. It never happened to, uh, like that, like without any marketing or any celebrity or any like that traffic that had along. So it was fascinating. And today, uh, last Friday, I can, today, I can say the whole, officially over 300 million has rattled through this machine, right? Uh, three years later. So they, which is fucking crazy. I know. And, and as well, good for us as my team, because normally when you have a marketing team, a creative team, they just like, okay, they just make nice images and nice like pop-ups or whatever, like, but they never, they only spend money. But right. my team actually makes the money. Uh, you can comf- I can confidently say because most of our, our traffic is through on, this is our main marketing uh, platform, Jane, for example, right? This is the most lead generating um, initiative we have beside maybe the loyalty system, which works beautiful together with Jane. So like that, that was the claim to fame. You mentioned kind of tangentially the record company and your photography business yeah. and all this stuff ongoing in, in the background. How did you uh, how did you get into that first of all, and then how do you maintain that? Because it sounds like you still do all it. You won a Grammy in twenty twenty for Christ's sake. Like you're you're still doing all of this. Yeah, but not for music. Not for music. For photography, photography. Yeah, which is even better for me because I'm a photographer. I'm not a musician. But so how do you do that? So in advertising. So when I was in advertising, I always had the opportunity to work with the biggest people in the world. In the nineties, I worked with from Ridley Scott to George Lucas, Industrial Light and Magic to any director you can imagine, Roger Vadim to Joe Pitka to all these big names you could imagine. David Fincher, Anton Fugger, everybody did commercials. We were, we used them for some of our, our our because we did so many. So I learned a lot from that, of course. Like I, I had my I went to the most important shoes. I built relationships with all the big directors and all that stuff. So for me this was like and I could see the entertainment business. I was really jealous that they could do something which they make a film and, and people pay to see it. Yeah. That was fascinating me. I made films and I have to pay. They go on air. And then when I don't pay anymore, they come off air. Right. Yeah. So I really produced uh, uh, content of cultural non-relevance, which is super empty as an artist. So this was my original motivation was I have to switch into this other world and the first thing what what happened was like the first thing i could kind of the first attempt was doing 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 music videos so i went in the music videos i was i was like don't laugh if i tell you like the cheesiest thing uh now considered but then there was the hottest band on the earth was ace of space mm-hmm. and i remember one of the guys of ace of space Ulf, which is still my great friend one of the band members he called me one day he was a friend of mine super you can imagine all the parties I went through. Like I obviously met people and hang out a lot. So that's how he called me. And he called me and said, hey, you want to do one of our music videos? I'd love, love to do it. And then, of course, I already spent in the, the kind of a whole thing. Not only I did the music video with him, I said, let's a brand get, let sponsor us to do this music video. So imagine what I put together. And I not only I did the music video, I called like, or he had the connection with the Swedish Air Force. So I had the Swedish Air Force to my, uh, to my uh, availability. Saab engines, who did cars and jet fighter engines, they were being Ericsson for the navigation system. They all paid for this huge music video I did with Ace of Base in an airbase. It was flying jet fighters and Hercules planes, <laughs> helicopters, whatever you want. So I, I brought up this budget from the record company, which was $100,000 to like $1.5 million or something with my business orchestration and stuff. So that was a, 
that shows you. So I always was thinking, uh, even there in music videos, I thought outside the box, I think we have to do something bigger than bloody $100,000 from a stupid record company, which they don't have any money to pay anything. So, so I did that and this led me slowly to dive deeper into the entertainment business. I always wanted to do movies, but there was no opportunity. Um, that was too big for me kind of then. I, I didn't know how to approach it really. So, but through the music, and then I was really interested in music because music was then the next thing which didn't need a canvas in a way. It's there, you know, it was, this was, there was about to the streaming service about to come, the CD. So it was a good business then and, and or the, the end of a good business. And I went in right in there. And then I was friend, so my kind of first wife was like a, a singer called Misha Paris in, in England, who is like a famous soul singer. And I kind of hooked up with her and we were together. And then she was the first artist in my record company. And we did an album together, which never sold anything, but it was great. I paid a little money for it, but it didn't work. <laughs> but but uh, we had a great relationship. And now we have a daughter together. That's my other daughter as well. So um, that that led me to know a lot about how you not to how not to do it, how to do it. And I hooked up with these producers in New York called the Berman Brothers. And they were there was two Germans in New York and they were just, they were very, they had one big hit with a, an artist called Amber. Another night, another day was a big hit. And through this, it came to New York with Clive Davis. You might have heard of Clive Davis as mm -hmm. one of the guys who initiated Whitney Houston, Alicia Keys and also Clive Davis. He brought them over. And I had Clive Davis contact before with Ace of Face because he was as well the guy who brought over Ace of Face to America and, and made them big. And so I got into this whole, whole entertainment swirl of music business through that. And then I was, part of this team who did Who Let the Dogs Out because my Berman <laughs> brothers, my two brothers called the Berman brothers, they made me kind of the third Berman brother. And I was there when we did then, were asked to do the remix for, for Bahaman and, and the remix for the, this remix actually then ended up on the album in 2000 and won the Grammy for best production. And we didn't even go to the Grammy because it was, it was, uh, it was, um, don't even think we're going to win it. The other one was Destiny Child with, with, with independent <laughs> woman with Beyonce. Yeah. So never going to win the Grammy for best production. But then we won the Grammy for, for this. So so this was not, this this is not my, this is not my, I cannot claim this. I never want to talk about it. People always like that story, but it's, you know, I was in the room, but it was, it, I didn't do the music, but we, we were together. It was kind of this momentum we had in New York. And then we did lots of great projects together. And one of the projects I was really proud of is the record we did together in Cuba, which is a famous record called Rhythms del Mundo. And you can Google it on, on Spotify. We did, it's basically like we used the Buena Vista Social Club, who was a mm -hmm. was an amazing, uh, uh, this kind of, this was the, the big times of the Buena Vista Social Club, these old guys, these old Cubans who've been rediscovered by a producer called Ray Kuda and took around the world, at, ending up in Madison Square Garden. And they're all 90 years old and were 40 years cleaning, cleaning tourists' uh, shoes in Cuba. And then they got the biggest artists in the world. So. We did this record in Cuba where we used Coldplay, Arctic Monkeys, Bono, Sting, and all the, the biggest the biggest songs of those bands. Took the took the took the voice of those bands, that's of, of Chris Martin, for example, Coldplay, and re-recorded the Buena Vista Social with the Buena Vista Social Club, a Cuban arrangement. So the oh, record cool. is called Rhythms del Mundo. It was the biggest selling record in 2005 in, in Universal. It was sold like whatever, like 10, whatever, 8 million, then it was already like. I don't know, like it was already like the end of the music industry. But um, so that is that was a, a wonderful project. And then this ended up in volume six with was with Amy Winehouse, Rolling Stones. We did everything. So 
So for years we did that. We still do that today, that record. I just work actually now on a jazz record in Cuba uh, with, with Miles Davis and, and, and or Billy Holiday. In parallel, that's what's happening at the moment. So I so always did that stuff and, and then uh, through all that, I, at some point I was always a photographer and I was always a filmmaker, but the photography was really what, 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 what I liked most because I don't need the big teams being mm. coming from commercials. You always have like hundreds of people showing up with duct tapes and stores and containers and have the police with the for the photo shoot you can do it yourself and the most important thing like a song you own what you do so that's what i was focusing on and then i did my first book later uh, independently in la uh, about the mexican luchadores where uh -huh. which, which i again got financed weirdly enough nobody always with my commercial head right i got this financed by univision and um Interjet, a Mexican airline. So they financed the book. It's expensive to make a book. So I, with the, with the Wrestling Confederation of Mexico, I did this book. And that book actually got me to the Queens of the Stone Age because Josh Homme from Queens of the Stone Age saw this huge like, limited edition coffee table book I did on the Mexican Luchadores. Uh, and he bought two. And then he brought me into his creative family, basically. And then that led later to Foo Fighters and all that stuff I did. So this started that journey. So this is kind of in short, what I could t talk forever because there's other offspring projects. You can imagine there's a lot of stuff we did as well, non-successful. Um, it's always you always talk about the successes, but there's at least ten projects like that, the Cuban thing, which didn't work. So like right. it's not for everyone out there. It's like but don't <laughs> don't give up because yeah. of one. You have to keep going, keep going, keep going, and yeah. at some point it's going to work. And the only one thing I wanted to mention: my only movie. If somebody listens. My only movie was written in the end in the Queens of the Stone. We did the documentary on Iggy Pop. Uh, uh -huh. The movie is called American Valhalla. It's on it's on uh, on Amazon Prime and and uh, and uh, and Apple. And this was my first movie. Won tons of fe festivals, and it was in the cinema. I was very proud. It was in art house cinema for over two years. It was one year in Japan in the cinema alone. So like wow. all over Europe, I went to all the festivals and all. It was great fun. But as well as successful documentary, one of the first real music documentaries, and I think it has a great message. If anyone wants to watch it, it's a, it's a good watch. It's, I co-directed it with, uh, with uh, uh, Josh Homme. And as, as well, uh, one of the interviews I conducted by Anthony Bourdain, who is unfortunately not with us anymore, but who was a good friend as well. So wow. he helped us there with the interviews. So it's a great movie. So it was my first movie, and I only did that three years ago. So there's a new movie coming at some point. But Do you... Uh... Do you believe in fate at all, or is this all just being fearless and saying yes and and going after what? Totally, I totally. I think I think you you have to at some point you have to. And by the way, cannabis. So I never I never used cannabis until later. And when I commit to something, so and this is like coming back to that Ace of Base video. When we did a a, a film with jet fighters, I had to learn how to fly a jet fighters, and they taught me in flight <laughs> simulators, and then they let me fly as well, like up in ten thousand meters, and you go nearly as far up, and you see the. You don't see the blue sky anymore. You see the, the black of the universe has wow. higher. So, so I had to learn it. So I learned that I couldn't even land one. So, so, so we spent a lot of time in this airbase there. So when I went into cannabis, I started smoking, consuming edibles, everything you can imagine. Every day since I started, I, I consume in the evening and test stuff and learn about it. And I still, I mean, I have a, I'm lucky because I have like three stores here uh, of our own stores mm -hmm. around me. And I can get any product I want, really. And obviously, people give me anything I want. So, so I, I really got advanced now after three years. And you have to immerse yourself in this. So coming back to your question, cannabis actually, for me, opened up this. You, you talked about fate. 
I was very good at it already in receiving from the universe. You know, you, you send out energy and then energy comes back. That's what I believe. Through, the, through cannabis, this got even enhanced because I, in the evening, sit down and I can, I, my, my antennas on power reception is like 5G or 10G or something instead of 5G, right? So I think cannabis enhances my faith and my belief in that things happen to you when you project them out there. But the, the important thing is, I think I believe in karma and I believe in doing good things and, and loving unconditionally. So I, I, I love my wife unconditionally, even if she doesn't love me back, I don't care, you know, because it's, it's, it's not, I cannot control it and I don't want to control it. I only know how much I love her. And if she would leave me, it's okay because I still love her. She might not love me, but that's, that's her thing. So this is how I approach it. And I do this with everyone. So I send everybody unconditional love and I'm always open. I don't forget everything what's behind. You know, I don't think, oh, he fucked me over last time. I would talk to him again. Uh, if there's some, I would listen again. You know, I'm not like, uh, okay, this guy is an idiot. He never, he never can learn. But every, always a new chance. But of course, I'm not stupid. I, I know where to <laughs> make stop it. But to be honest, like, I only believe in that because when you, when you, when you like, I want to do some certain thing and it always happened to me. Like I wanted to have this. I want to have that. I want to have a Grammy. I have a Grammy. I really, really wanted it. You know, I was even talking about it. it was like, I needed, but then it even came when I didn't expect it. I, I got a call in. I was sitting in Chicago on a, on a, we just looked at a grow there and for dinner. And then I see the, the, the popper from the Grammys come desert session, won a Grammy. It's like, I didn't even know they were, we were nominated. Totally. I believe in faith and this is like, but you can influence it when you, if you're a good person, if you get rid of the bad energy, don't surround yourself with, with, with bad energy, just walk, walk away from it. And just, that's what I learned. You know, you cannot force it. If there's people with bad energy, just get, get away from them. What a great message. I can't think of a better way to, to wrap us up. Dre. That was phenomenally enjoyable. Your stories are are second to none. I feel like we have another hour in us, but I'll I'll wrap it up for today. Um, <laughs> I'm happy to come back and we can dive deeper into the pockets of the yeah the whatever, like the Queens of Stonehenge and the Foo Fighters and whatever, because I have a lot of great stories there, like with with and without weed. Thanks for so, being here, man. This was super this was incredible. Welcome.